0: Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time today, welcome to our church. We're so glad that you're here. Or maybe today's the first time in a long time in that case. Welcome back and welcome home. Well, last week we started a short sermon series that dealt with an ugly distortion in the church, namely spiritual abuse in the church. And spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader, uh, whether it's a pastor, elder or the head of a Christian organization, uses their position, authority and power to mistreat, harm or exploit vulnerable vulnerable people under them. Now, spiritual abuse is an unpleasant and uncomfortable topic and Uh, We're going to talk about it, uh, and I'm going to give you two reasons why. First, uh, it's an important and relevant issue, as far too many churches have experienced spiritual abuse and have been left shattered uh, by it. And two, and more importantly, so that we as a church family... Might be educated on the topic of spiritual abuse, so that we might resist it, so that it might not it might not happen here at Christ Central. Um, knowing that it can happen anywhere, even here, will make us more watchful and vigilant against it. Uh, last week, uh, we considered uh, the reality of spiritual abuse in the church, and today. And, and next week, we're going to talk about some practical ways that we can resist uh, spiritual abuse from happening uh, in the church. And because this topic is so controversial and so confusing, uh, we're going to have a time of question and answer. Uh, that's going to be on January 28th at uh, 12.30 p.m. in the large multi-purpose room, where you can ask any questions about any of the sermons that we're preaching in this series or any question related to the topic of spiritual abuse. So if you have a question about spiritual abuse, no matter what it is, you can ask it, and we will talk about it. And you can register for this on the Church Center app. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Uh, We're going to read from two places today. First from Galatians and second from Philippians. So first turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 22 and 23. People of God, this is the beautiful word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Next, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable... If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, The goal of this series, and really one of the most important ongoing goals of our church, is this to nurture a culture at our church that encourages our people to not only believe in Jesus, but also to resemble Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to behave like Jesus. In other words, we want to have a culture at our church where we encourage, where we pray for, where we work for, and where we celebrate the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of our people from the pastors to the elders to the members to the regular attenders. We want to have a culture at our church where everyone from top to bottom thinks about and practices whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure and lovely and commendable, whatever is excellent and worthy of praise, that we would have a culture at our church where everyone thinks about and practices these things so that the peace of God might be with us as a church family. You see, a church culture that nurtures Christ-likeness is a culture that, by definition, will resist spiritual abuse because Jesus and spiritual abuse are antithetical. And if everyone in our church, from the pastors to the elders to the members, are becoming more like Jesus and behaving more like Jesus, then that means that we will have a culture at our church that won't just resist spiritual abuse, but have a culture that promotes spiritual care and healing and health. Now, in order to nurture that kind of Christ-centered, caring and healing culture, we're going to look at seven biblical and beautiful priorities and practices. And these priorities and practices are pleasing to God the Father because they are affirmed in His Word. And they center Jesus and call us to follow and to imitate Him. And they can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us as the people of God. These seven Uh, Priorities and practices are taken from Scott McKnight's and Laura Barringer's book, A Church Called Tov. Uh, Tov is the Hebrew word for good, so the title means A Church Called Good. Now, I don't agree with everything in this book, but there is so much in this book that is not only biblical but insightful and helpful. I highly recommend it to you if you want to further study this issue on your own or maybe with friends or maybe even in your community group. Uh, In fact, about a dozen or so Korean American senior pastors around the country will gather together next month for our annual senior pastors retreat. And the main topic of our time together this year will be the topic of spiritual abuse. And we're going to be discussing this book together because every senior pastor knows that they are capable of being spiritually abusive. If they don't, they're fools. Every one of us. We know we're capable of this. So we want to do what we can to resist it and avoid it, not only for the sake of our churches that we love, but also for the safety of our own souls. And so we take this very, very seriously. Now, before we get into the priorities and the practices that can shape and nurture uh, culture, we first have to briefly talk about the reality of culture. You see, culture exists in any and every social group, uh, including churches. Every church has a culture, and a church's culture is shaped by far more than their beliefs and theological commitments. For example, uh, all the churches in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, we all have the same beliefs and same theological commitments. Every PCA church affirms the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms, and yet... Why do churches and the PCA look and feel so different from one another even though they have the same theology and even though they may have the same ethnic and racial uh, demographics? Well, that's because churches can have the same theology, they can have the same racial and ethnic uh, makeup and yet have two or yet have very different uh, uh, cultures. That's because the culture of a church is set not only by its beliefs and theological commitments, not only by its racial and ethnic demographics, but especially by their functional values, priorities, and practices. If you are a part of this church, you're a member of this church or you're a regular attender of this church and you participate in the life of the church, that means on a week in, week out basis, you experience the culture of our church, not just our theology, and not just our ethnic and racial demographics. I want you to think about this. There's a reason why Korean American PCA churches look and feel different from one another. That's because our church cultures are different. And because every church has a culture, including our church, we must be intentional about shaping and nurturing the culture at our church so that we can have the culture that we want, so that we can be intentional about it, so that we might have a church culture that not only encourages and cares about people believing in Jesus, but also a culture where we care about people behaving like Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And we shape and nurture the culture of our church by being intentional about our shared values, our shared priorities, and our shared practices. And then it takes all of us to make that happen, from the pastors to the elders to the members, for all of us to actively nurture the kind of culture that we want. Again, a culture that not only resists spiritual abuse and toxicity, but a culture that encourages and helps every one of us from the pastors to the elders to the members, it helps all of us become more like Jesus, the one who would never spiritually abuse, the one who loves and heals and serves. Now, there are seven priorities and practices that we're going to consider over the next two weeks, and today we're going to consider the first three. First, um, priority and practice, nurture empathy and compassion. Second, priority and practice, nurture grace. And third, priority and practice put people first start with the first which is to nurture empathy and compassion empathy is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to see the world from their perspective and to maybe even feel their pain if they're suffering in some way compassion literally means to suffer with so To be compassionate means that you have the ability to suffer with those who are suffering. Now, the mark of empathy is to feel another's pain, and the mark of compassion is having the desire to alleviate their pain and to do what you can to help bear their burden with them. Compassion is the outworking of empathy. Now, the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels is a man who is full of empathy and compassion. Time and time again we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the sick, the suffering, and the socially outcast. And it was his compassion that moved him to touch and to heal, to cast out demons, to forgive, to defend, to teach, and to speak words of comfort and grace. Jesus had compassion for the lost, the least, the last, the left out, and the left behind. And as Christians, we are united to Jesus by faith, and we are being renewed into his likeness. And that means that we who are followers of Jesus are called to have empathy and compassion as well. Because Jesus had empathy and compassion. You see, Jesus calls his church to wrap her arms around the poor, the oppressed, the suffering, and the needy. You see, a church that follows and imitates Jesus must have a heart of compassion for the wounded, the marginalized, the outcast, and the forgotten because Jesus does. A culture that nurtures empathy and compassion is a culture that resists the opposite, which is narcissism. And what is narcissism? Well, narcissism is radical self-centeredness, having an excessive preoccupation with oneself and one's own needs, often at the expense of others. Narcissists are unable or unwilling to recognize the needs and feelings of others. They lack empathy and compassion. A church culture becomes toxic when the members behave in narcissistic ways. When they think Only about their needs and their wants with no regard to the needs and wants of other people. And a church culture becomes not only toxic but also spiritually abusive when its pastors and leaders behave in narcissistic ways. When those in positions of authority and power think only about themselves, do only what they want to do with no regard for the members of the church and oftentimes at the expense of the members of the church. And so we as a church family must resist and fight against narcissism. And we do that by nurturing empathy and compassion by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Narcissistic members are toxic. But narcissistic pastors and leaders are not just toxic, but spiritually abusive. And everyone in the church... From the pastors, to the leaders, to the members, everyone needs to repent of their natural inclination toward narcissism. Every single one of us have a tendency to think only about ourselves. Every one of us. And then we also need to actively and intentionally nurture empathy and compassion. Because for most of us, that doesn't come naturally. We have to pray for it. We have to work for it. We, ask that. we have to ask the Holy Spirit to cause us to become more empathetic and compassionate. And when we do that, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, we nurture a culture that resists spiritual abuse and toxicity and a culture that promotes spiritual care and healing. But listen, it takes all of us to do that. Not just the pastors, not just the leaders, but all of us to repent of our narcissism, all of us to actively nurture and pursue empathy and compassion. So Christ Central Family, let me ask you to ask yourself this question as you're sitting here. Who among us in our church family may be struggling or hurting in some way? Who among us in our church family needs special attention and care? Who among us may need our empathy and compassion. Who among us might feel left out or left behind in some way? Maybe it's the non-Koreans among us that need our empathy and compassion. Maybe it's the older singles among us that need our empathy and compassion. Maybe it's the couples who are unable to have children. Or maybe it's the families with children with special needs that need our empathy and compassion. Or maybe um, it's those with physical disabilities among us that need our empathy and compassion. You see, to have a church culture of empathy and compassion means that we learn to put ourselves in one another's shoes, and we begin to see life in the world from their perspective. And we begin to feel their feelings, to feel their fears, to feel their frustrations. And then to be moved with compassion to do what we can in small ways and in big ways to help alleviate their pain and to help bear their burdens. A culture of narcissism says, I want our church to meet my needs. I want our church to do what I think our church should do, and I want our church to do things in the way that I want our church to do things. It's all about me. That's narcissism. But a culture of compassion says, I want our church to meet the needs of everyone in our church family, especially those who are hurting and struggling right now, especially those who feel in some way marginalized or left out in some way. And I want our church to do what we all care about, not just what I care about. And I want us to do it in ways that serves everyone. A a, a culture of compassion says it's about us, all of us together. Listen to these beautiful words by the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ So the first priority in practice uh, that will help our church resist spiritual abuse and toxicity is for us to nurture empathy and compassion. Here's the second, and that is to nurture grace. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus was the most graceful and the most grace-giving man who ever lived in human history. Jesus was so overflowing with grace that the worst of sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, felt safe and welcomed around him, while the self-righteous religious leaders felt offended by him and threatened by him. And as Christians as those who are united to Jesus by faith, as those who are being renewed into the likeness of Jesus, we too are called to be people who are graceful and grace-giving, just like Jesus. So as a church, we're to nurture grace. But how do you do that? How do you nurture grace? Well, you do that by doing two things. First, and most importantly, it begins by receiving, personally receiving the grace of God in Jesus Christ. To receive grace means to see and to accept that God has been so good to you, so kind to you. In fact, that God has done you the ultimate goodness. He has shown you the ultimate kindness by forgiving you and saving you in His Son Jesus Christ. And you did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. You were not worthy of it. But God graciously did it anyway. You see, you weren't even looking for God. You were dismissive of of God. You rolled your eyes at God. You didn't give a rip about God, rip about the church, rip about salvation. You could have been, you're just so non-interested. And so God had to take the initiative. So God came to you and God poured out his goodness and his kindness upon you in Christ, even when you weren't looking for it, even when you weren't asking for it. It's as if God imposed his goodness upon you when you didn't want it. That's great. Actually, what you deserved was God's condemnation and wrath for your sins. But God gave you the opposite of what you deserved. His love, his goodness, and his kindness. That is grace. Nurturing grace begins by seeing and receiving and rejoicing in God's grace toward you in Jesus Christ. And then... Only then, secondly, we nurture grace by giving and receiving grace to and from one another. You see, as those who have first received the grace of God in Christ, we can now give grace to one another and receive grace from one another. You see, only those who have first received the grace of God can give grace to others. You cannot give what you have not personally received. So what is what does giving grace and receiving grace look like practically in the life of a church or church culture? I think there are two things. First, we initiate being good and doing good to one another even when the other has done nothing to earn it or deserve it or, or merit it. You see, we don't wait for someone to say something or to do something that will cause us to treat them with goodness and kindness. Most of us do that, right? We kind of passively wait around, and when we see someone doing something that we think merits or warrants our goodness, then we do it. You know, to nurture grace means that we can give what I'm going to call unprovoked goodness and kindness to one another. Even though they didn't ask for it, even though they didn't do or say anything to deserve it, yet we take the initiative and we show unprovoked goodness. And kindness to one another. And we're called to do this because isn't that exactly what God did for us? Didn't God show us unprovoked goodness and kindness when we didn't do or say anything to deserve it? And yet God, unprovoked, was so kind to us. And because God took the initiative to be good and, and to be kind to us, now we can take the initiative to be good and kind to one another. So you know what that means? It means that you can go and write that note of encouragement to someone that seems random to them. They weren't expecting it, but they get it anyway. Or you can go and surprise someone with a gift that blesses them, that encourages them, not because they said or did anything to deserve it, but it was unprovoked on your part. And we do it expecting nothing in return. We do it simply for the joy of giving grace and giving life to one another. That's showing one another unprovoked goodness and kindness. Second, it also looks like responding with forgiveness to one another when we're sinned against, when mistakes are made. When someone at church sins against us or hurts us or makes a mistake, one way that we can respond is with unforgiveness. We can be bitter, resentful. We can hold grudges, maybe even wait to get even. We can cut that person off and move on. And let me just tell you, if we do that, if you do that, you will actively contribute to making our church culture toxic. Terrible place. Or we can respond with forgiveness. We can reconcile and restore broken or strained relationships. We can give that relationship another shot. We can um, humbly grant forgiveness that we would like to receive if we're ever on the wrong side of sinning and making a mistake. But as we all know, uh, actually forgiving is so hard. It's hard to forgive, isn't it? Uh, C.S. Lewis once famously said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. That is true. It really only is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can forgive one another from our hearts. As the Holy Spirit reminds us of how much the Father has forgiven us in Christ and as recipients of forgiveness from God, we are now called to be givers of forgiveness to one another. You see, a church culture that nurtures grace gives room and space for people to, make, uh, to mess up, to make mistakes, and to learn and to grow from their mistakes. You know, fear makes a culture toxic. When people fear messing up or making mistakes because they fear being shamed or slammed. But grace drives out fear grace says that we don't have to be prisoners of shame to our mistakes but we can be students of our mistakes learn and grow from our mistakes and because we all sin and we all mess up we all need grace don't we and so we need to give grace to one another we need to be able to humbly receive grace from one another you know when we're tired and stressed every single one of us i don't care how long you've been a christian i don't care if you're an elder or pastor We're all capable of saying and doing things that are hurtful when we're stressed out and exhausted and overwhelmed. And and when members won't forgive, uh, they create a toxic culture of fear. And worse, when pastors and elders can't forgive, they create a toxic and spiritually abusive culture of fear. You know, if we want a culture that is safe and not driven by fear, then we need to intentionally and actively nurture and practice grace. You see, grace assures us that when we sin and mess up, that we can apologize and reconcile that a relationship is not ruined forever because of that sin or mistake. That there is hope of reconciliation and redemption. You see, without nurturing grace, without practicing grace, we will have a toxic culture driven by fear where people are afraid of being honest and vulnerable about what they're really like. You'll never be able to share what Helen shared if you don't believe in grace. And we're going to be so afraid of making mistakes. And I tell you, church, that if we stay in a culture of fear for too long, our souls will wither up, shrivel up, and die. And we will just be shells putting up fronts because we're too afraid to let people know what we're really like. But a culture that nurtures grace and practices grace is a culture that gives life, gives joy, gives freedom, and gives hope. So to nurture a culture that resists spiritual abuse and toxicity, we must nurture empathy, compassion, and grace. Let's look at the third uh, priority in practice, which is to put uh, people first If you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus always put people first. Now, the religious leaders at the time uh, always put the religious system first before the people. Let me give you two examples. They put the maintenance and the economic profitability of the temple first, ahead of the needs of the people who needed to worship and pray. And that's why they allowed them to set up money-changing machines in the temple. And so what did Jesus do? He rebuked them. He flipped over those uh, money-changing tables in the temple so that the people who didn't have resources could worship and pray in the temple. And then they were also those uh, that put their religious rules first. They put the rules ahead of the people. And you remember that one encounter where they put the rule of not healing on the Sabbath ahead of the needs of a crippled man who needed to be healed. And so Jesus rebuked them. And what did Jesus do? He healed a crippled man on the Sabbath. Jesus always put people first. He, lo- he saw and he loved every person that came before him, whether male or female, whether young or old, whether rich or poor, whether powerless or powerful, uh, w- w- whether healthy or sick, whether religious leader or outcast sinner, Jesus Always saw the people before him and he always put them first. And as Christians who are united to Jesus by faith and who are being renewed into his likeness, we too must put people first. Because that's what Jesus did and does. So how do you put people first? Two practical ways. First, we put people first by treating all people, whether they believe like us or not, all people, as image bearers of God. There are no small, insignificant, and worthless people ever. Every person is sacred and precious because they're created in the image of God, and as such, simply for being a human being, they are entitled to our respect and kindness. That means that no one, no matter their race, their gender, their age, their educational level, their economic power, or their social status, no one is ever beneath you. No one is ever less than you. And you never, ever have a right to harm or mistreat another person. The essence of treating people as image bearers of God can be summed up by these beautiful words of Jesus when he said, do unto others as you would like for them to do unto you. Second, we put people first by treating fellow Christians. Now we're talking about Christians. Fellow Christians as siblings, as brothers and sisters in the family of God. To treat one another as siblings means that we care about one another. We look out for one another. We protect one another. We believe one another. We trust one another. We cheer for one another. We weep together. We rejoice together. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly in one another, and we still love one another anyway. Kind of like what you do with your actual siblings. You see all of their warts and flaws and yet you love them anyway because they're your sibling. To put people first in the church means, listen very carefully, to put the people of the church ahead of the institution of the church. What do I mean by that? That means protecting people is more important than protecting the reputation or the ministries of the church. It means caring for people is more important than having well-run, polished worship services on Sunday. It means loving people is more important than running the church efficiently as an organization. Those things are important, but they're not more important than people. Jesus protects, cares for, and loves his people. Jesus puts his people first, and so must we. Let me wrap this up. So today we've looked at three uh, priorities and practices. First, we must nurture empathy and compassion. Second, we must nurture grace. And third, we must put people first. So I have a confession to make. And that confession is I have a hard time putting people first. I tend to put projects ahead of people. And I'm going to give you one example that's kind of tame so you don't dislike me too much, okay? So in my home, I find myself putting clean rooms ahead of my adult children. And when I do, I behave very poorly, and I end up damaging my relationship with the very people that I'm called to love and to serve. Some of you with teenage children may understand and resonate with me, but whenever I walk by my kids' rooms and I take a peek into their rooms and I see the chaos and the mess that it is, it stresses me out. Clothes all over the floor and you don't know which ones are clean or dirty. Hundreds of empty water bottles, piles of dirty plates, trash everywhere, even on their beds. And I'm thinking, how do they live like that? It creates so much anxiety and stress for me. And sometimes, too many times, when I've seen that I, 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 my blood pressure goes up, stress goes up, and I've exploded in anger, and I've yelled in anger, saying, how many times do I have to ask you to clean your freaking rooms? right? Can you just act like an adult and be responsible? How, why do I have to ask you to clean your room? Can't you just do it on your own? And I just go berserk. And sometimes I'm afraid that my neighbors, Deacon Phil and Esther, might hear me <laughs> and think, what kind of pastor do we have? And as you can imagine, my adult kids don't respond very well, When I get mad like that, when I yell like that, and it damages our relationship as father and children. Now, listen, wanting a clean room is not bad. It's reasonable. But it's bad when I put it first, when I put it ahead of my kids feeling loved and respected by me, and when I'm willing to sin and yell in anger to get what I want. Who cares if I get my clean room, if my kids... Hate me. One day, after I saw that their rooms were a great chaotic mess again, instead of yelling in, in anger, I texted them. <laughs> I know, you got you to do what you got to do. And I calmly explained in my text that it stresses mom and me out when we see their rooms so messy, even if it doesn't bother them, but it bothers us. And I respectfully asked them to clean their rooms for our sake. I didn't demand it in anger. I requested it with respect. And then my son Caleb texted back, which was shocking because he never texts back. But he responded this time, and this is what he texted. And I'm going to show you verbatim on the screen with all the (laughs) grammatical whatever. And this is what he texted back. This is a good example of how to communicate that you don't want it done just to be done and that it bothers you, but without yelling and being mad, nice job. So, <laughs> so I'll be honest, I was both like encouraged by that and a little offended by that, right? <laughs> like, who does this little chashik think he is texting like that to his dad, But that day, by the grace of God, I had put respecting my kids ahead of getting my clean rooms, and that allowed me to communicate with them in ways that my kids felt respected and loved, and in ways that demonstrated that I actually cared about them more than caring about clean rooms. Now, that was a small but significant step for me because I'm still learning how to put people first even in my home, whether it's my wife or my kids. So Christ-central family, by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that lives in each and every one of us, can we learn to put people first? Because people are more important than projects, no matter how worthy that project may be. And let us nurture empathy and compassion and grace so that we might nurture a culture at our church that not only resists spiritual abuse and toxicity, but we might nurture a culture where everyone, from the pastors to the elders to the members, where everyone is encouraged to not only believe in Jesus, but to become like Jesus and to behave like Jesus. And if we can do that, friends... We won't just resist spiritual abuse and toxicity at our church, but we will rejoice the heart of our Father in heaven. And we will know and experience the peace of our God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I confess that I have too long prioritized our church believing in you and in your son Jesus without equally emphasizing or prioritizing that I, myself, and our church family becomes more like Jesus. Would you forgive us? Would you forgive me? And would you help our church family to really believe that behaving like Jesus and becoming like Jesus is just as important as believing in Jesus. And so, Father, by your Spirit, would you cause us as a church family um, to be more empathetic, more compassionate, and more gracious with one another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Please stand as we respond to the word of God.